Ow! This is not Gene Simmons of the Rock Group Kiss, and you are listening to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews. Ow! Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Mike Cordes. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we have a returning guest co-pilot from the Potter Than Hell podcast, Mr. Steve Wright. Steve, good to have you back on the podcast, man. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Of course. You're always welcome. So in this episode, we finish up Solo Vember as we review Gene Simmons' 1978 solo album. So, Steve, give us your history and where you come in with Gene's solo album. All right. Uh, Kiss, I had been a fan since 1976, uh, late 76, early 77. You know, it's, that was a really long time ago for me. So uh, I was I was like eight years, seven, eight years old and um, going through one of my buddy's brother's records, Snoop in, and saw Kiss Destroyer, put it on. I was hooked right from that day. And um, from then on, I, you know, started getting – couple albums here and there i picked up the uh, first kiss album on cassette and um then i remember i think the next one was love gun then when the you know i was hooked then so then the solo album started coming out and i was always uh, opposite of you aaron i was always a paul stanley guy and uh, wow i picked up his first and then ace and then i think peter and i think gene i got last and we'll get into how it how it hit me so uh but and i've been a you know kiss kiss fanatics ever since i'm of the thing that you know they can do wrong i'm not a you know a kool-aid drinker so uh i i call them out on shit that i don't like and um that's that's what we do on our podcast tell the truth absolutely yeah it's funny destroyers the album that pulled me in too so uh mike how about gene solo album so um i re- i said it last week but i got three of the albums all at once through this rec- local record shop uh all on picture disc uh peter g and jeans were still sealed and i bought paul stanley's or my dad got them for me for christmas someone had bought just the ace one and then um but gene i got in that initial onslaught and um, i actually got into kiss on not until crazy nights and then went back so there we go oh wow, you were a little um, latecomer uh, yeah i was like 13 by the time yeah. I got into Kiss, yeah, '87, yeah, something like that, yeah, yeah. So like that's like non-makeup era. So yeah. did you know anything? Did you know that they were about the makeup and the costumes and things like that? Oh yeah, definitely. I remember okay. hearing about them and seeing them, but it didn't really. It was weird. It didn't really get on my radar as something I wanted to listen to. I, I very distinctly remember Crazy Nights coming out, and the hokey lyrics in Crazy Nights resonated with my 13-year-old <laughs> self. Um, yeah, and but then. You know, reality slaps you in the head once you listen to that album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as I've said in the last three episodes, the Kiss solo albums were a big deal, but I didn't have enough money saved up for my allowance to buy all four. I mean, I was, I was eight years old in 1978. And at that point, I was drinking the Kiss Kool-Aid. They could do no wrong at that point. So I had to get the albums one at a time, and I knew which one I wanted first. Uh, on the Ace Fraley episode, I said that Ace was my favorite member of Kiss, and he was because in 1976 and 1977, Gene Simmons was scary to six-year-old Aaron. You know, he breathed fire. He spit blood all over himself. But I always loved monsters from, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula to Godzilla. But Gene was like a monster made real, and then he, he was frightening to me at the time back then. But by 78, I saw Gene's theatrics as, like, cool instead of scary. And I always liked his makeup design and costumes the best of the four anyway. So my allegiance kind of switched over from the spaceman to the demon. And I got Gene's solo album first. You got it last and I got it first. I remember, oh, I remember how excited I was to put this on my kitty turntable, my Fisher-Price kitty turntable, and drop the needle. I mean, I was expecting an album of badass demonic rock. And little did I know. <laughs> Here you go. now i'll give you some basic facts about this album swiped straight off the wikipedia page for your consideration gene simmons is the debut solo album from american rock musician gene simmons released on september 18 1978 on casablanca records it was produced by gene simmons and sean delaney and was recorded from april to july 1978 at the manor oxfordshire england 
Cherokee Studios, Los Angeles, California, and Blue Rock Studio, New York City, New York. It reached number 22 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified platinum by the RIAA. And here's the musician's lineup card. We have Gene Simmons on vocals, guitars, and acoustic guitar, Neil Jason on bass, Elliot Randall on guitars, Alan Schwartzberg on drums, Sean Delaney on percussion and backing vocals, Carolyn Ray, Diva Gray, Franny Eisenberg, Gordon Grody, and Katie Seagal, yeah, Peg Bundy from the TV show Married with Children on backing vocals, and there are a fuck ton of additional musicians, which we'll mention as we see fit. And before we get into the review, I'd like to credit an invaluable source for my research. I didn't just use Wikipedia for this. The book is called Gene, Ace, Peter, and Paul, written by author Julian Gill, a guy who runs the KISS FAQ website and hosts the KISS FAQ podcast. It takes a detailed look at the solo albums and is a highly recommended read for anyone who has an interest in the solo album era of KISS. So huge thanks to Julian Gill. Steve, you know him, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, I've known him for met him a couple times, and uh, we had a uh, nice chat and a couple of beers on the on the last Kiss Cruise I was on. Real good guy. Excellent. Cool. All right, let's plow into a track by track analysis of this album. We open the proceedings with "Radioactive," written by Gene Simmons. Steve, what do you think? Okay, Radioactive. Uh, like I said, I was this was the last album that I picked up. And um, I'm 10 years old at the time when I picked this up. And I dropped the needle on it there. And you get that evil little laugh in the beginning. Then you get the dramatic classical music. It absolutely scared the shit out of this fucking 10-year-old. <laughs> you know, and then you get the Japanese girls chanting. It's, it's really an intense beginning. And then you get the, you know, it kicks in with the, with the chugging. I think this is probably the most Kiss-like song on the album, um, mm. which will be painfully evident by the time we get through this whole fucking thing here. <laughs> um, it's a good, it's a good song though. It's got a you know the honky tonk piano to it and stuff. Uh, you know, decent rock and roll type solo in it. I like that space effect. He's right after that like part yeah, in it. It's weird. Yeah, because like yeah. you're listening to Kiss, like you don't you don't hear any of that shit on any of those you know first albums and stuff. You like what the hell is that? The bass that Gene didn't play sounds really good. Um, there's a lot going on this production-wise, and I, I think they're off good to a good start here. The bass that Gene didn't play. <laughs> Rock and Mike, what do you think? So I was I was a bit older when it when I first heard this record, but would this record start any other way than with that demonic sounds? But that music reminded me that classical interlude that kind of connects everything reminded me of the Wizard of Oz. I was waiting for the Wicked Witch of the West to come flying by. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I I really like the song a lot. I like the chug with that cool riff. That's at the beginning, it's a little bit lower in the mix, but that chug riff, it's weird. I think they use it to connect it to the song because. It's almost matches up with that honky talk piano later in the song. Hmm. You could take the chug out and put the piano there or vice versa. If you continue, took the piano out and had that chugger like kind of continuing it through, but it turns just kind of into an upbeat rocker. I love Gene's delivery in the verses, the, the radioactive backing vocals with Peg Bundy. Uh, it's a cool solo, which I'm assuming that's Joe Perry. I know he plays yeah. on the, on the track. Um, the fade out bugs me on it though. It takes way too long to fade out on this song. It just it keeps going and going. I'm like, <laughs> eh, it can stop any time now. I wish they found a way to do like a cold end on the song, but the song itself really cooks. Yeah, so I'm going to be repeating what you guys say. I mean, that's what we do on this show, right? <laughs> so we first hear demonic laughing in that dissonant string section that was arranged by Ron Frangipane. I hope I pronounced that right. That serves as the intro to the track, and it's unsettling and cool, very atmospheric. It scared the shit out of me, too, Steve, at the time. Then it turns into an up-tempo hard rocker that's got undertones of boogie-woogie to it with Neil Jason's melodic bass and Eric Troyer's excellent banging, like you guys said, honky-tonk-style piano. That's very prominent in this track. 
Steve Lacey's on guitar and Alan Schwartzberg's on drums, both of whom played on Peter Chris' solo album, On Loan from Gene. And now this album is known for all the guest stars that played on it, as Gene wanted to throw in everything but the kitchen sink at it. And on this track, we have singer-songwriter Janice Ian singing Hosanna, Hosanna, on the intro section. And then in the song proper, we've got Bob Seger on backing vocals and Aerosmith's Joe Perry on the bluesy solo. He does a nice job. Yes, he does. Yeah. The lyrics are about a woman who's so hot, she's radioactive. She's Gene's food and water. She's got him eating out of her hand. And the chorus is catchy. Gene appropriately growls the vocals, and I love this track. It's a great bombastic start to the album, and it's exactly what I wanted. This is going to be a great rocking album from the Demon, right? It's also the only single from the album that reached number 47 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart and is the sole tune from this album that Kiss played on the Return of Kiss tour in 1979. The next track is Burning Up With Fever, written by Gene Simmons. You can have me just one time, baby. Steve, your thoughts. All right, burning up with fever. Uh, you got the gene demon like counted, rawr, rawr, rawr. <laughs> um, which is cool. I'm like, okay, cool. Then you get the do 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 do. Now at the point, you're like, okay, what the fuck is this? And then he goes, lovely, which <laughs> you know, he's complimenting the acoustic guitar there, I guess. The drum kicks into like a it's got a funky riff on it, kind of almost human feel to the riff, I think. Yeah. Um, and then now um, the, the Stevie Wonder singers make another uh, appearance <laughs> here on the album, coming for the chorus. Uh, but if you listen to this song, it's got some really cool guitar licks throughout the verses. And also in the choruses, too, there's some like background guitar licks that go on. There's a ton of production on this album. Yeah. Um, the, the solo is really good. Very short, though. Um, even with the singers that I'm not really crazy about, I, I still really like this song. I like the feel to it. Rock and Mike. So that count in, I really thought it, well, to me, it really reminded me of the beginning of Wooly Bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, where he, <laughs> where he count when he counts in. And then the whole thing where he says lovely over the sour notes of the guitar. I thought it was a, a really a cool change up from the beginning of Radioactive because now all of a sudden you're expecting something from Gene. And now all of a sudden you're actually getting like his sense of humor a little bit at the beginning, yeah. which I thought was pretty mm. cool. But I, oh man, I love that riff, and I'm I'm gonna attribute that to Skunk Baxter. But um, you know, he kills it. But the, to me, the riff's got almost a ZZ Top feel. And uh, last week, I mentioned how the R&B backing vocals kind of I could do I could do without, but I don't mind them on this one. It's uh, it, I actually like them here. It's got a funky bass line. I even like that little stutter where he's like, "I won't, I won't." And even the solo seems like something Billy Gibbons might kind of burp out a little bit. But going back to our rock and roll over episode way back when, we talked about how you can tell a Gene song because he really hangs his songs on his chorus. There's it he he really beats you over the head with a chorus in the songs that he writes. And he does it here. It's like, I got it. You're burning up with fever. And it just he's he's lucky because it works. It really works on this song. I like the end of the song. But he hits you with the chorus so much, it almost makes me feel like I'm in the movie Groundhog Day and I'm waiting for Ned Ryerson to come off the curb. <laughs> Ned? Ned? Ned Ryerson? Pow! With the punch. No, you're right. Gene. It's a total Gene trait and he does it all over this album, almost yeah. every track. Yep. So this one was written in 1975 for the Destroyer album, but it was rejected then by producer Bob Ezrin. So this, be, like we said, it begins with Gene counting off to that discordant classical acoustic guitar lick played by John Shane Howell that sounds deliberately wrong as Gene murmurs, lovely, as a knowing joke. He's joking. You know, and I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I like that, too. I think it's kind of cool. Then it transitions to a song that comes in two parts, kind of a plodding heavy rock number with a cool riff in the verses that switches to a disco inflected funk tune for the chorus featuring Neil Jason's funk bass. And if that sounds odd, it kind of is. And when I first heard it, I didn't care for it. But like most of the tracks on this album, as we're going to see as we go along, it grew on me the more I listened to it. 
Gene is still in demon voice for the most part, and the lyrics are very typical for him. He's basically a gift given to women, baby, though he's not a mistreater. And he's coming on to the target. I mean, the woman, who again is so hot, she makes him feverish. Guest stars on this track include Jeff Skunk Baxter of Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers fame, playing the guitar fills and solo, and he nails it, of course. And then Gene's Casablanca label mate, disco queen Donna Summer, adds some wordless whoa, whoa, whoa vocals <laughs> on the song's outro. Now, this is not exactly the follow-up tune I was expecting at the time, but I still dig this one, too. The following track is See You Tonight, written by Gene Simmons. How about this one, Steve? Okay, now it's uh, Gene Ballad time. His first attempt on this album, I think, uh, at a Beatles-like song. It's not bad when they do it on MTV Unplugged. It's pretty good. I, I don't hate it in that ah uh, part. It's a pretty good match for Magic Touch that you'll see on the Dynasty album coming up after these albums. And don't tell me Paul Stanley didn't fucking nick that. And when he says he didn't listen to these albums, he's full of shit. Um, <laughs> this song is Gene, I think, putting... Now he's putting some distance between him and the demon persona once we get into this song here. And I think that becomes a more recurring theme as we go along throughout some of this album here. Um, and they're getting the orchestra in there like on Great Expectations. I'm just glad this minute this song's only like two and a half minutes long. <laughs> Mike. I actually really like this one a lot. <laughs> I, re- I really do. It's one of my favorites on the record. I love the Beatlesque delivery with the that ah uh, the background, which as you can tell, I can't sing. Um, the backing <laughs> vocals. I even like the orchestration on it. He gets in, he gets out. Like Steve said, it's short, it's to the point, and uh, it's pure pop. I, I and I really like it. So this is another song written and demoed in 1975. Gene has always stated how much of a Beatles fan he is, and this is his attempt at writing a song that showcases his fab for influence. It's acoustic guitar-based, Skunk Baxter is also on this, and it definitely comes across as an early Beatles-style pop tune. It's light and airy and very accessible. Now, the story goes that Gene wanted John Lennon and Paul McCartney to sing on this. Apparently, he reached out to them, but they were uh, uh, unavailable. Uh (laughs) So he got the next best thing, Mitch Weissman and Joe Pecorino from the Broadway show Beatlemania to sing backing vocals. So, you know, he's got the Beatles in on it, right? The string section swells up towards the end of the song to provide a climax, and Gene actually sings this well, almost tenderly. And I like his voice. I've always liked his voice. He shows that he doesn't always have to growl like a monster to make his point. The melodies on this are solid, and the lyrics appear to be about Gene must wanting to see the girl tonight, outside, and if he can't, he'll cry, like he cares about her or something. And I'd almost feel for him if I didn't know this is the same guy who banged over 4,000 women and had the Polaroids to prove it. (laughs) This is a real left turn, but I still dig it, though now I'm getting the sense that we may not be in for that demonic rock album I was hoping for. (laughs) And then, as we said, in the mid-90s, Kiss played this song acoustically on their convention tour as well as on their Unplugged show and did a very nice job with it. The next track is Tunnel of Love, written by Gene Simmons. You'll jump off the roof if I say I won't let you get away It must have been the devil How about this one, Steve? Okay, you got a little uh, slinky bass that starts out that Gene once again doesn't play um, into mm-hmm. a good riff. I like, I do like the feel of this song. I like the lyrics. Um, you'll jump off the roof if I say, like, wow, Gene. Now we got a little Jim Jones thing going here that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you love me that much there. You know, check your ego at the door, my friend. Um, <laughs> Did you say to Gene Simmons, check your ego at the door? Uh huh. Is that possible? <laughs> I don't know. It would have to be a really big door. 
<laughs> but like, I'm like, what's with the, the, the female singers. It's like, I, I feel like I'm starting to, to be in church right now and you know, not at a, on a Gene Simmons album. Some of them are, are good, but like, like every song it's, it's starting to, you know, get on my nerves a little bit. I do like the layered vocals again in the verses. There's a lot of layered vocals on this album. The production is, is crazy on this album. And I mean that in a good way. Um, and the solo, this is one of the best solos on the album. I think it's very ace like, and it sounds like you could have plucked this solo off of hotter than hell from like that period for ace. Um, and then like you hear like a, a whispered, lock it up on it. Like not really sure what, what that is, but we are going away from the demon here. And, and uh, my opinion of this album, you always say history repeats itself. It's repeating itself now, but with Paul Stanley, he's trying to distance himself from kiss. And I think Gene was doing that here on this album. Mm. Yeah. Rock and Mike. This is the first crack in the record for me. It's not, I mean, this has to be a, like a rejected kiss idea. I'm, I'm, I'm completely guessing on that. It's not horrible, but damn, like tunnel of love, tunnel of, oh, oh God, just change the type of the title of the song and just, you can just go pussy, pussy. <laughs> like, like, nobody's expecting deep veiled lyrics from Gene Simmons. Just call it what it is. I was like, all right, I got it. I got it. I got it. And, but he continues just to hit you over the damn head with it through the whole thing. Uh, I'm with you, the solo. I like the solo a lot. And that's Joe Perry again, I believe. Yes. Uh, yep. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm all aboard on the solo. The bass line is cool. Um, but again, he's hanging on that chorus. And again, the fade out is too long. Yeah. So the popping bass and syncopated drums lead this one off into another slower rock grinder with Richie Rano from the power pop band Stars on guitar. And it's got a similar vibe to the verse riff of Burning Up With Fever. The highlights of this track are Neil Jason's bass. He slaps it in spots, and he emphasizes the funk undertones of this track. And then Joe Perry, back to play another ripping, bluesy solo in his own style. The female backing vocals add a little bit of a pop sensibility to the chorus. And although Gene thinks he's being all seductive, he sings this track like a pervy deviant, which makes sense, since the lyrics are just another sleazy come-on. Gene wants to visit her tunnel of love, which, as everybody knows, is sexy slang for vagina. This has always been a lesser track for me, though I still kind of dig it, and it's also interesting as this was one of three tunes Gene demoed in 1977 with Eddie and Alex Van Halen, which was kind of the stuff of legend and remained like buried for years until they were finally released on Gene's ginormous vault box set in 2018. You've got the vault too, right, Steve? I do, and um, yeah. those songs with the Van Halen brothers, they were the very first ones I looked for in there and put on when I, when I finally got a chance to get it home and, and check out the CDs. And I was like, holy shit, finally got to hear them. Yep. How are they? How I are almost they? didn't believe they, I almost Fantastic. thought they did. I almost believe they didn't exist. I, <laughs> but I know. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, uh, the Christine 16 one, the, it, the solo is like just almost note for note on the album. And the solo in Got Love for Sale, uh, Have Love Will Travel, Got Love for Sale, is just like Ace could practice for a thousand years and he would not be able to do that solo. Yeah, that's Eddie. Eddie is, yeah, you you hear that and you go, that's Eddie Van Halen. Oh, yeah. So do do those songs have like Alex's drum sound? No, because it's a demo. Uh, No, uh -uh. No, it's just a demo. So you can tell he wasn't playing like his setup. It was probably just a setup of whatever studio. Because that was always that's always one of my things about Van Halen that nobody really talks about is is uh, Alex's drum sound. It's very unique. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Especially a snare. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. Very famous. Yep. The following track is "True Confessions," written by Gene Simmons. I'm not your social security. I'm not your star opportunity. Yeah. Oh, baby, you can have me. like this one steve um okay um <laughs> for some reason the the guitar at the beginning of this like just the very beginning reminds me of the theme from the dukes of hazard 
just some good old boys. You could throw just some good old boys <laughs> right in the beginning of that. Like it was stuck in my head when I was listening to this. Um, and this is a weird song for me. Like there's so many layered vocals on this album. And this is like a glaring example of that. Um, he's rarely singing alone on this album. You have more of the Stevie Wonder Girls and for the chorus on this one. More honky tonk piano here. Now in the middle part, you get that opera stuff. I don't really know what the hell that was. Didn't see that coming. I remember even as a kid listening to it going, why is this? Why is why is this in here? What What is this stuff? Um, there's just so many weird elements, especially for me when I listen to this as a 10 year old. Like I'm like, this album is just all over the place. I don't know if I'm in church with my parents or if I'm, <laughs> you know, what the hell is going on here? And but the the riffing under the chorus is really good, but it's that part is pretty drowned out. We're getting into some weird territory on some of these ones here. Mike, I'm on Team Steve on this one. <laughs> I do like the riff. It almost immediately goes into that harmonized pre-chorus. But the thing is, I have to laugh every time he goes, "Yeah," and he throws that in. <laughs> I mean, who the fuck does he think he is, James Hetfield? I'm like, hey, he like. I think he threw in as many yas as Hetfield had in his Ooh, entire yeah. career. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all it needs. Like special guest James Hetfield on the 2020 <laughs> remix of True Confessions. True <laughs> Confessions, ah, Confessions, ah. Um, but those and the backing vocals, same thing. Um, I'm going to refer to them as the Stevie Wonder Girls now, Steve, because I think that's great. <laughs> but um, they distract me from the the meat of the song. I do like the piano though. And all in all, it's it's an okay way to end side one, but a very strange song to have Helen ready on. You know, I, <laughs> I guess so. You know, she's saying I am woman, and he's <laughs> and she agrees to sing on this. Uh, my my favorite story is, I guess, during the recording, her and Gene Simmons played ping pong in the studio. <laughs> Good lord! Oh man! Helen Reddy and Gene Simmons playing ping pong is that a <laughs> euphemism? <laughs> I, 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 I want it to be, but I don't think it is. It's like a bad acid trip. Because like, I can't picture – I just picture Gene in the big boots and the full makeup, just like that that like stomp he does, when, like going back and forth with ping pong paddles in his hand. <laughs> with the big spider rings on. Yes. Yeah, yeah. with the big spider yeah. rings. Yeah. So this was another track that was demoed in 1975 for Destroyer. And this one comes across like a late 70s pop rock tune, complete with a Christine 16 style piano clanging on the chorus, played by Richard Gerstein, or Gerstein, I don't know how you pronounce it, and a huge chorus sung by the Azusa Citrus College Singers, a competitive collegiate singing group of some renown, and then Helen Reddy, the easy listening pop star known for her big hit, I Am Woman. This is strictly middle of the road. Gene's confessing to the woman that she used and abused him. <laughs> yeah, right, she used him. But he wants to get together with her again. He's not going to be her social security or her star opportunity, but he is available for a good fucking. <laughs> the main guitar lick is decent, but truthfully, this song really has never done anything for me. I'm kind of, I'm on your guys' side on this one. I mean, you know, you throw in the chorus, kids doing this, oh, classical shit, and you've pretty much lost me, uh, Mr. Demon. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Living in Sin, written by Gene Simmons, Sean Delaney, and Howard Marks. What do you think of this one, Steve? Okay, well, you shouldn't have your accountant help you write a song. <laughs> okay? And I know this is going to be shocking to everybody. Another Gene Perv song. <laughs> but this one does have a cool feel to it. I like the chorus. It's uh, I'm now calling them the SWGs, the Stevie Wonder Girls. Uh, more <laughs> SWGs in this song. Another ego, out-of-control song for Gene. I, I guess the nowadays it would be Living in Sin at the Hilton Inn, I guess, or something. The phone call you get in there with, I guess it's Cher and her daughter – there's a whole thing on Wikipedia or kiss monster that says what it's supposed to say. It's uh, Oh my God, it's Gene Simmons. And you know, <laughs> it's, it's really we So it's, it's another song that's got another, you know, weird thing thrown in there in the middle of the song. 
I like it. The song, it's it's okay. It's ending of the singers are going, but like when they're going living in sin and in, and he's going out. They're going in. He's going out. <laughs> Every time they say in, he's out in. So it's like kind of like a back and forth. Like he's you know doing the doing the nasty there. But um, I'll give this one an okay. Rock and Mike. <laughs> oh man, cringy Gene. He's been. <laughs> There's there's so much in here that just makes me laugh. Um, if I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, you got to hear this song. I'm only playing this song for somebody to point out just all of the things that Steve just mentioned. It's the spoken opening. You know, you write me letters. It was like, OK, <laughs> you know, you are you send me sexy letters. It's just like, oof. And what the hell is Gene doing behind this? You said he's saying out. Because yeah, when they're when they're saying they're living in sin at the Holiday Inn, he goes out in out. Yeah. Because I kept thinking it was almost like something like Uga Shaka, Uga Shaka. <laughs> like <laughs> no idea. Oh and yeah, then, yeah. No, that's a totally different part. Oh yeah. okay, all right, yeah. Because it's it's this weird like I, I had no idea what was going on there, and then he brings in the big bopper, "Hello, baby," <laughs> <laughs> and then ironically. I thought it was really ironic that she, is this Gene Simmons? And it's right over the top of a bass line that he's not playing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, it's not Gene Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> and the the line, you want me to protect you. Sometimes my love can go can go too far. What the fuck, Gene? What does that even like, you know, you want me to protect? Like, are you like I, I don't even want to speculate what he's doing at that point, but this is Mike's unimpressed fluffy fuckery. <laughs> So this was co-written by producer and longtime KISS aide Sean Delaney, as well as business manager Howard Marks. Go figure that one. And this is one weird motherfucking track, and I love it. Even though I'm fully aware, (laughs) I'm fully aware how stupid it is. Over a lazy drum beat, Gene says in his low, sexy voice how he knows you write him sexy letters and you send him pictures for your wall. <sighs> While he's heavy breathing, no one you, already get, <laughs> you already get the sense where this one's going. Then it turns into this sleazy rocker with snarling guitars, melodic bass, especially in the chorus, and Eric Troyer once again banging away on the piano. These fucking lyrics, man. Gene knows you want him. Deep in your heart, you want to love him. Give him a call. He knows who you are. And then the chorus with Bob Seger again on backing vocals. I'm living in sin at the Holiday Inn. It cracked me up in 1978. It still cracks me up now, stupid as it is. The second go around on the chorus, there are these like backing vocals that are reminiscent of the Uga Chaka vocals on Blue Suede's Hooked on a Feeling. It it has to be inspired by that. And again, they just make me laugh in their rote stupidity. And you can't talk about this song without mentioning the breakdown in which Cher, who Gene was dating at the time, calls up and acts like a starstruck groupie. Oh my God! Oh Jesus. I just take this track for the ridiculously silly mess that it is. And I love it. Fuck you all. I don't give a shit. Won't you come on in? Ow. In. Ow. (laughs) Fuck it. (laughs) The next track is Always Near You, Nowhere to Hide, written by Gene Simmons. Steve, your thoughts. Okay, Gene, you are fucking killing me here. Um, <laughs> when you, when it first starts out, it has a feel to it that uh, comes out in the elder and only you vocally from the elder, I think, there mm. in a little bit. Um, yeah. More soft and slow, Gene. This is not what I came here for. Where the fuck is the demon? I mean, <laughs> come on. I, I'm not impressed. If I want to listen to the Beatles, which for me is almost never, I'm sorry, I go to the Beatles. Just, just fucking yuck. Uh, the orchestrated part, I think, is is just fucking ridiculous. No one wants to hear Gene singing falsetto. I mean, like, just fucking kill me. This is Steve's shitty song selection. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. 
Yeah. <laughs> Quoting Steve Wright, just fucking yuck. Mike, what do you think? <laughs> oh, ditto. Um, yeah, so I feel this is a precursor to every breath you take when it comes to ballads about stalkers. The song's really about that journey from that simple acoustic to that epic bombast. Um, I don't mind the build of the song, very calculated placement of the guys from Beatlemania again, which, and I thought it was interesting when you look through the guest appearances in the liner notes, it actually says they're from Beatlemania, which I find that interesting. Like it doesn't say Joe Perry of Aerosmith. It doesn't say skunk Baxter of the Doobie brothers, but these guys actually got credited from as being from Beatlemania. So I thought that was pretty cool at one forty three when it just, it's, there's just that guitar lead that comes in. I keep waiting for it to hit a sour note as it, it's building. I'm waiting for pring and for just some sour, <laughs> like string breaking note for some reason. And I'm always a little disappointed that it doesn't happen, but who the hell knew Gene could hit those falsetto notes always. I just always assumed his tongue would get in the way. <laughs> <laughs> My problem comes with the choir because it's like a big tent revival combined with stalker lyrics. It makes me visualize a horror movie of like the, Truman show where everyone's working for Gene watching whatever poor girl he's deciding to stalk that day. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's all I got. (laughs) So this is basically two songs stitched together like something the Beatles would do. You know, Paul McCartney's got nothing on Gene Simmons. The first part is a tender acoustic ballad that I kind of like. Gene sings it with care in his nice voice. And the lyrics are about Gene realizing that he's alone. The woman left him. But if she crosses herself and wishes hard enough, Gene will come to her. You know, sort of like Dracula. She can't hide from him in the night. Stalkerish, like you said. The string section returns along with Richard Gerstein, Gerstein, whatever, on piano as the track builds up in tension and then abruptly shifts into a gospel tune with the Citrus College singers and the Beatlemania guys as a gospel choir and Gene really reaching into his upper register singing, don't try to run, you'll be the only one, don't try to hide from me and everyone, good grief. This is another track I know I shouldn't like, but I do. (laughs) Hallelujah, (laughs) brother demon. The following track is Man of a Thousand Faces, written by Gene Simmons. Steve, hit us. Okay, Gene, here we go, buddy. It's got a cool, loose, little jangly riff to the start, and but the verses on this song are intense. And then the chorus is like, oh. But I do really like the verses. It's like you, you talked about before, Gene and Helen Reddy playing ping pong. This song is like a fucking ping pong match for me between the chorus and the verses. Love the verses. The chorus just absolutely freaking kills me. Who's the man? Not Gene Simmons on this fucking song for sure. Um, <laughs> but I really do like the intensity of the verses. The choruses just kill me and the verses bring me back. Um, RT Gene, no, thank you. Uh, Rock and Mike, do you like RT Gene? No, I don't like RT Gene. <laughs> uh, I do like the riff at the beginning. It's got almost like a China Grove kind of vibe to it. So I, I, I do like that about it. And Steve, I'm with you. I do like the delivery in the verses. Again, the chorus, the, you know, I, I talk about Gene's choruses all the time. Usually his choruses are pretty on point. This is the exact opposite. The strength of this song is in the verse. Um, but that I wish they would have kept that riff throughout the song because they kind of kick it to the curb yep. uh, in favor of the orchestration and really just a plodding bass line. It's like, eh. You got that kind of Penny Lane-like trumpet underneath. Mm. And as a whole, the song's just kind of, eh. So this is yet another rejected Destroyer demo, 
And musically, this song again lets Gene's Beatles influence come through with the fusion of the hard rock tune with the string section. He's going for a more intricate soundscape that nicks more than a little bit from like Eleanor Rigby and fuses those orchestral sonics to an unorthodox song structure. He's going all out on the art rock. Again, this is not what I expected from the Demon of Kiss. And whether he pulls it off or not, I guess is left to your individual taste. Man of a Thousand Faces was the nickname of famed silent movie actor Lon Chaney, who often played monsters and ghoulish characters in his films and was an early innovator of movie makeup. His ability to transform himself using makeup earned him the nickname. Gene was a huge fan of Lon Chaney and must have identified with him as Gene also wore the makeup and when he was in his makeup and costume, he transformed himself into the monster, demon character. And that basically is what the song's about. Gene can put on any face and hide the real Gene from everybody. It allows him to make his own rules. We actually get a little bit of lyrical depth for once. I mean, honestly, I hated this track as a kid. I didn't get it. But over time, it really grew on me. And now I quite like it. We finally officially crossed into devil's advocate territory with that one. (laughs) (laughs) We know what color Kool-Aid Aaron's drinking. It's red. It is red. I I used to spit it all over myself, pretending I was Gene spitting blood, and I told him that when I met him. Come on, let's be honest. Which one of us didn't do that? (laughs) Yeah, that's a fair point. I know I did. (laughs) Yeah, but did you do this, Steve? I also spit, uh, I I filled my mouth full of uh, uh, lighter fluid and spit it into a Bic lighter and burned the shit out of my face. Did you really? I also told him that story, <laughs> and he kind of he just he covered his eyes. He's like, "Oh no!" <laughs> Shook his oh, head. <laughs> no, you know I what, didn't though? do that. I yeah. can tell you, there's pro- there's probably a lot of people that told him that. My question is, what did lighter fluid taste like? It's awful, dude. <laughs> it's horrendous. Yeah, we stopped. And I got the home. Cannon lighter. And my face was like kind of char- it was all red and charred. So I got home, and my mother. It was a summer day. My mother goes. What the hell happened <laughs> you? And I, cause, and I was panicking because I didn't know. My face was hurting. It was killing me. Uh, so I didn't want to tell her what I really did. So I, so I somehow pawned it off as a sunburn. I think she just didn't want to know. Yeah. She really just didn't want to know. So she just <laughs> let it go. We just let it go that it was a sunburn. But like, <laughs> I still have these like scars from it on the sides of my forehead to this day. Did you? Oh. Did yeah, you, I almost. Did you, almost did you keep your eye face off? Did no, you, they got the, the, well. They got singed. They were still there, but they but they got singed. So you had the burnt yep. hair smell as well. Because I didn't know the technique. Because what he's doing is he pull he's pulling it away from his mouth when he yeah. spits the kerosene into the thing. I didn't know that. I just put the lighter and just spit it straight in. So the thing just blew up a fireball right in my face. I'm like, ah! <laughs> oh, <laughs> were there people around to witness this? No, no. I wanted to practice it so I could show my buddies. Okay. (laughs) Don't try this at home, kids. Yeah, really. (laughs) And not only that, ever since then, I'm a semi-pyrophobe. Like, I can't, if I get too close to, I'm not good with handling fire (laughs) to this day day because of it. I have difficulty lighting a match. Well, I can see why. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did your mother ever find out the real story? It's funny, guys. I told her, 25 years later, I told her. And she cracked me across the face. (laughs) (laughs) There's that burning sensation again. Here it is. Did did it it burn like this? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. The next track is Mr. Make Believe, written by Gene Simmons. How about this one, Steve? Okay, another tryout song for the Beatles here. This album for me is in a fucking downward spiral at this point. Um, maybe Paul could do this song on Soul Station. It, it might work for him. Um, <laughs> but it's just not what I go to Gene Simmons for. Just sappy shit. The production sounds really good, but just no. Um, I want to make believe that this fucking song was never put the vinyl. <laughs> Mike, how about you? <laughs> I'm... This is where I disagree with. Steve. I actually really like this one a lot. 
<laughs> I don't know why. It's just I, I really do. The I really like the the Beatlesque kind of parts of it, but also it sounds like I'm a big old, a bigger Beatles fan than you might be, Steve. So I I, I really don't mind it. It reminds me of kind of Hard Days Night era Beatles, uh, which I've always I've I've already got a soft spot for. So I think that's what it what it speaks to. Could be even the baseline. I think that's something. It's very McCartney esque in the in kind of the the way it, it, it plunks along. I think his falsetto works along with the orchestration. And it is. It's it's actually one of my favorites on the record. Really, I yeah. think most of the world are bigger Beatle fans than I am. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. <laughs> okay, for me, um, if Gene wanted to go for Beatles, I want uh, I want to hold your hand, love me, love me do stuff like that. I like the soft sappy shit. I just I don't I don't like I don't I don't get the attraction of it. So that must be for me. Like I hear Beatles, that's the stuff I want to hear, not yep. this like like rubber soul type stuff, I would say. Gotcha. Yeah. You're not a ballad guy, right? No. Yeah. Yeah. See for me in this, this, this song in which we learned that Gene secretly wanted to be a member of the Eagles. This tune to me totally feels like an early Eagles tune. It was written and demoed in 1976 and it's mostly acoustic guitar strumming based along with more Neil Jason melodic bass. It's an interesting syncopated Alan Schwartzberg drum beat and wood block percussion. Skunk Baxter appears one more time to throw in a couple of guitar licks, and those strings again appear to keep the vibe lighter, along with Mitch Weissman and Joe Pecorino again adding their sweet Beatlemania harmonies. The lyrics confuse me a little bit, though. Gene clearly is trying to preserve a relationship. He asks her for one more chance tonight, but then he asks to live inside Mr. Make-Believe. Does that mean he wants to become someone else to please the woman he wants to be with? Does he need to pretend to be fake to win her over? I don't know. This is another grower for me, though. Eight-year-old me hated this shit, but as I got older, I learned to appreciate this song, and I dig it now. Kool-Aid is going down easy. (laughs) Chase it with some lighter fluid. Yes. (laughs) You know, the blood looks more realistic if you just put the red powder in your mouth instead of Mm. the blue itself. (laughs) It it was like the early cinnamon challenge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The penultimate track is See You in Your Dreams, written by Gene Simmons. How about this one, Steve? All right. Um, it's pretty much the same track that's on Rock and Roll Over, differently arranged. Um, this one's not bad, but af- be- this song being after the piece of shit that Mr. Make Believe is for me, it's very welcome. <laughs> the uh, the SWGs are back. And the guitar solo, wow, I'm, I, I kind of been missing that for the last couple of songs. Um, it's really good. I like this one. I don't mind this a bit. And uh, this version's a, a little more dramatic, I think, than the one that's on Rock and Roll Over. But... I don't hate it. I, I, I think it's one of the better tracks on the album. Rock and Mike. I agree. I think the album's starting to, well, we'll get into, I'll say finishing strong um, <laughs> for now. But Rick Nielsen makes his presence known. I mean, the solo, there's no denying that's, that's Rick Nielsen. You can just hear oh, yeah. it. You know, it's, that's his, he owns that solo. It's got Cheap Tricks thumbprint all over it. It's a great riff. I, uh, I like how they keep it, which I want to thank them for. I like how they put the riff in the chorus. He's got the, I love you, bong. You know I do, bong. It's almost like, I think the bass player, he's like, I love you. And it's almost like a truth detector. And he's like, dirt, wrong. No, you don't. <laughs> you know I do. <laughs> dirt, no, no, you don't. Um, <laughs> the drums kick ass. This is probably, it, it, it fights out with um, the solo. I think it's a solo off Radioactive we were talking about before. But this is up there is probably one of the best solos on the album, maybe behind that other Joe Perry solo. And it's got Murdoch from fucking MacGyver singing background vocals, which is cool (laughs) as hell. So I, I, I really like this song. So after the last three tracks that were kind of lighter in tone and more experimental, Gene finally decides to rock it up with a cover of his own kiss song, 
originally on Rock and Roll Over. This time he's got Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick rocking out on guitar, and he has English singer-actor Michael DeBar on guest vocals, and he's doing this weird vocal thing on the chorus. I've got the finger, I've got the finger. (laughs) It's really weird. (laughs) It's kind of funny sounding. And the Rouge Girls are on backing vocals one more time. Gene adds an extra verse, and he's basically saying to the girl, don't worry, I'll fuck you in your dreams. So there's that. As I said on our Rock and Roll Over episode, this was my least favorite track on that album. And I guess Gene wasn't happy with it either. And that's kind of why he reworked it here. I mean, I don't know. It's got a different feel and there's a more lively energy to it. It it almost sounds like, I think one of you brought this up. This is like if Cheap Trick did this song, this is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. But is it an improvement over the original? I don't know. It really doesn't make me, it doesn't make me like the song any better. It's just a head scratcher that he would do this at all. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't suck. Yep. I, I, what, you know what? What the fuck, Gene? And that brings us to the final track, When You Wish Upon a Star, written by Ned Washington and Lee Harline. What do you think about this one, Steve? Um, all right, here we go. Walt Disney time. Um, just this is a, as Randy Jack would say, uh, that's a no dog. Um, I, I get where Gene's coming from doing this song. I, I, I totally get it, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. Come on, I, I'm wishing upon my star, and it came true that this fucking album is over. <laughs> Rock and Mike, how about you? I did not make this my muff because of the backstory on it that we were talking about last week. I had no idea about the backstory. If I did, if I didn't know, if I didn't know that backstory, I would no, no, no. And even knowing that backstory, this is 1978's equivalent to Brandon off Generation Swine by Motley Crue. Mm -hmm. Oh, 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 my God. God, like I, I pretend Brandon's not on that album <laughs> mm-hmm. and I pretend that this is not on this album. Like see you in my dream that that should have been the last track and we're out to put this on. What the fuck, dude? And I will take Generation Swine. Yeah, that I'll, I'm going to I'm just going to end it there. But this is 1978's version of Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, I love you. I love you. I love you. She's your mom. <laughs> oh my god, I, that that is probably the single worst Motley Crue song ever recorded. Yes, hands down. It has to be. Absolutely, it has to be by a country mile. Yep, <laughs> nothing comes close. <laughs> I once read an interview with Gene, where he was asked what his favorite song of all time is, and he said this one, the famous tune from the 1940 Disney film Pinocchio. When he came to America as an eight-year-old boy from Israel, he could barely speak English, and television and Disney cartoons helped him to learn the language. And this song in particular struck a chord in Gene, as he totally bought into the American dream, that you can make your dreams come true, that all things are possible. And he took that sentiment to heart, something he carries to this day. He really saw America as the land of opportunity. So this is done straight up Disney style with an orchestral backing and the angelic voices of the Citrus College singers backing Gene up. And Gene sings this with feeling. I mean, he's not doing this as a joke or sarcastically. He's completely serious. And if you listen closely, at some points his voice nearly cracks. And that's because, according to producer Sean Delaney, he was crying as he sang this as he was deeply moved by it. Now, all that said, this is fucking awful. I'm not going to fault Gene for doing this as it was so intensely personal to him, but to actually put it out on a solo album was just a fucking lunk-headed idea. It closes out the record on a bizarre note, and his voice is just not suited for this. He's trying, but he's not getting there. Jiminy Cricket, he's not. I couldn't stand this as a kid, and though now I view it in a different light, just like you guys knowing the background of it, it only makes it marginally tolerable. He should have saved this one for the vault, Gene. This is Aaron Stinky Stinker. (laughs) 
Now that the track by track is concluded, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which is Gene Simmons doing When You Wish Upon a Star. <laughs> Steve, what are your final, <laughs> which is Brandon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is Brandon. <laughs> Steve, what are your final thoughts on Gene Simmons 78? All right, it's a it's a strange album. It's it's got Gene, I think, uh, trying to impress critics and show how many uh, stars he can get on the album, and you know, possible uh, demo tryout tape for the Beatles should they get back together in 1978. Um, mm-hmm. There's some good moments on this album. There, the production is really solid. It's just it's it's too much for me even now. And as a ten year old in 1978, holy fuck, was this way too much for me? I want the demon, and I want some fucking logs in a fireplace. From Gene Simmons. <laughs> What's your rating, Steve? Oh, um, two point five, solid, right in the middle. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Rock and Mike. I'm gonna give it a three, slightly more. I really think he had about maybe half of an album that he flushed out into a whole album. And I think going back to the songwriting criticism that I had earlier about how he can put some choruses together. It's apparent on this album why he needs a writing partner, why Simmons and Stanley work. And they work because they apparently bring ideas. They're they're good at bringing ideas together and making those ideas cohesive because it's the the flaws in his songwriting stick out that banging your head over the chorus thing. You can only take it for so much. And that gets lost or it's not lost, but it gets more tolerable on a Kiss album because you have the other writers that kind of balance everything out. So it's not awful. I think somebody who's a Kiss fan, you're going to want to pick it up. Um, to this day, I have a, a magnet of this album cover on my refrigerator, uh, but it's only because of the makeup and because it's Gene. It's not because of the quality on the record. <laughs> it is the coolest album cover out of the four. Yes, oh, it yeah. is. Yeah, hands down. Kiss was seemingly on top of the world by 1978. The band released its second live album, Alive 2, in late 1977, and put out their first compilation, Double Platinum, in April of 78. Both albums were certified platinum in a 1977 Gallup poll named Kiss the most popular band in America. In addition, there was a virtual blitzkrieg of Kiss merchandise available, from lunchboxes and board games to trading cards and pinball machines, giving the band a sizable income source. When KISS signed a five-album record deal with its label Casablanca in 1976, the contract called for a solo album by each of the band members, with each record counted as a half-album toward their deal. They were to be true solo albums. None of the band members would appear on another's record and would reflect their individual musical styles and tastes. The multi-million dollar marketing campaign was unprecedented, as all four solo albums were released on the same day, September 18th, under the Kiss umbrella, with similar album covers painted by artist Eraldo Carigatti that assigned the members a specific color, jeans was red, and included a poster and inserts specific to that particular member. As the bass-playing demon of Kiss, Gene Simmons had certain expectations placed on him. Most fans were expecting an evil-sounding rock album to match his monster persona. But Gene had different ideas. This was his solo album, a reflection of who he was, not what the demon was. So he pulled out many of his old demos and reworked them. And many of these songs did not have the typical Kiss vibe. They were influenced primarily by the Beatles, and some had a fairly experimental edge to them. Gene also wanted to validate his rock star celebrity status by having many famous guest stars on his album, a rather large list that included such diverse talents as Bob Seger, Donna Summer, Helen Reddy, and Cher. We've talked about this. This resulted in a somewhat disjointed hodgepodge of an album that didn't even feature Gene playing bass on it. He chose instead to play guitar. When they were released, all four solo albums were shipped in certified platinum, but the oversaturation of KISS product began to wear on the public, and the solo albums did not sell anywhere near Casablanca's expectations. The label ended up with thousands of album returns, and record stores placed the solo albums in the cutout bins. I remember being so excited to get this when I first got the record, and being so disappointed when I first heard it. To my young ears, it was just a sprawling, unfocused mess that only had a couple of songs that sounded like what I wanted it to be. But I gave it time and kept listening. And once I started to let go of my preconceived notions, the album steadily grew on me over the years to the point where now I like the majority of the songs. 
The record does showcase Gene's diverse songwriting interests and gives a little glimpse of who Gene Simmons the man really is. And yes, that includes the Disney tune. I give Gene Simmons 78 a three and a half. And if it's not at the top of my favorites list as far as the Kiss solo albums go, at least it redeems itself and rewards my patience with it. It's not that bad. And from Album Addicts, LaDonna Adrian Gaines, known by her stage name Donna Summer, and Helen Maxine Reddy. Rest in peace. Now we'd like to thank Steve Wright from the Potter Than Hell podcast for returning and slogging through Gene's solo album with us. It was fun, man. Yeah, it was a great time. I, I appreciate you guys inviting me to come back on here. And uh, like I said, when you asked me to do this, I picked Gene to do because I, I think it's the most interesting solo album out of the four of them. And, um, you know, you could, it's easy to go with Paul or Ace and, you know, you could go and bash Peter or not. And I've listened to the, you know, I've listened to all the solo albums, you know, in the, in the last couple of years. And, and I don't really hate any of them, but they're just, you didn't get Kiss with Peter and Gene. But um, yeah. there's some good stuff on here. I, I enjoy it. And uh, I appreciate you guys inviting me back. So, Steve, go ahead. Please plug your great podcast and anything else you want to talk about. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, we're the Potter Than Hell podcast. I do the show with my uh, three co-hosts, my son Dylan, that does all of our production and editing and everything. He's great. Uh, actually, we're recording this on the 21st of November. Tomorrow is his birthday. He'll be 27 tomorrow. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy, yeah, birthday, happy birthday, Dylan. And I, I do it with my two, my two of my best friends, BC and BB. And uh, we have a great time. We talk about everything from Iron Maiden to Rush, Kiss. Uh, we just we actually just recorded a Kiss episode last week. The uh, we just recorded a Rush episode, Iron Maiden. So uh, we pretty much do anything hard rock or metal. And uh, if you guys haven't checked us out, check us out. If you listen to Aaron and Mike here, uh, you can find us on the same venues. Absolutely. And I've appeared on that podcast a couple of times now. Yep. I, I have a great time. You you guys are just awesome. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Appreciate really. it. Yep. Been a big fan of your podcast ever since the very beginning. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Let us know and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host a show with us, and we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. And I'm Mike. See ya. She's your mom. We were just discussing uh, Christmas toys with my granddaughter, and uh, apparently the hot toy for three-year-olds is something, it's called the Gotta Go Flamingo, and it's a toy flamingo that actually poops. So, oh, oh, oh my God. Yeah. My daughter, gotta go Flamingo. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter's like, you will not buy her this. <laughs> is flamingo shit pink? <laughs> no, my it's really gross. Because once it's done shitting, you reload it by putting the shit back in the flamingo's mouth. Oh, great. Oh, damn. <laughs> and I thought having dolls that wet was bad. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought the fucking garbage pail kids were bad. Oh, my God. It's 20 bucks at Walmart. Wow. Jesus. Yeah. See, it's much easier having boys. Oh, yeah. It sits <laughs> on a toilet and it, like, sings and wiggles as it shits or something. I don't know. Oh, good Lord. Yep. That's unbelievable. Yeah. She's like, I want the pooping flamingo. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got, actually, it was a three-year-old's birthday party I was at tonight. I, I wish I knew that beforehand. I would have got and I would have brought it really? up. Really? That would have been awesome. That would have made the party awesome. Yeah, it would have. <laughs> Everybody, let's watch this bird shit. Yeah. We, we bought them uh, 
fake, a box, a, like a, a barrel of fake snowballs. It was just a fucking free for all the adults up there once you open those up. It was awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it is. You, you can literally have Nolan Ryan throw one of them at you and it won't hurt you. Right. Oh, right. Cool. But, but they fly, though. I mean, it's like they're made out of this cool, cushiony cotton shit. Fucking excellent. That's cool. I might be getting those. <laughs> yeah, really. There you go. I'll have to Forget see where the... she got them. I'll, I'll send you a text. Yeah, yeah, Forget then... Flamingo poops a lot. Get, get, get that shit. <laughs> you gotta poop one of the snowballs out. <laughs> the flamingo. There's a there's a there's like a whole line of them. You got the pooping flamingo, and then there's a booty shaking llama. Oh good are lord! You, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, gotta go flamingo. Just Google it later. Oh uh, man, they might as well have a fucking cat that coughs up fur balls. <laughs> that would be actually really funny if you could get a realistic noise. Get the, get the gag noise from them. Right in the middle of the night, three in the morning. <laughs> Holy shit, that's awesome. It's gotta go flamingo! Uh-oh, gotta go! Uh-oh, gotta go! He talks. I'm so hungry. Are you hungry? 